We turn to the book of Ezekiel and chapter 37. Before we read the chapter, we must put it into its historical context. Remember that Ezekiel was the prophet to the exiles, and he prophesied in the suburbs of Babylon by the river Kibar. Jeremiah prophesied prior to the destruction of Jerusalem for some 50 years and saw the destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel did not see the destruction of Jerusalem because by then he was already taken in an earlier band of exiles some 11 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. There were more than one bands of exiles that came from the Babylonian captivity and Ezekiel was one of the earliest bands in the bands of exiles, along with Daniel and his three friends, princes who were to be held as hostages if Israel or Judah, Jerusalem's king, did not pay the tribute Nebuchadnezzar demanded that they were the threat to slay all those hostages, those princes and sons of priests and so on, who were in the exile already. Ezekiel was taken then with Daniel in an earlier band of exiles, 11 years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, at the age of 25. And then you read in the opening verses of Ezekiel that when he was 30, meaning he was there at the age of 30, and then it mentions the, the number of, of six or so that they had been in captivity some six years and five years before the destruction, he receives the vision of the cherubim that, that, are, that are moved by wheels upon wheels, if you recall that uh, cherubim, four cherubim, and holy, holy glory with the throne of God covered, kick, being, being carried by them as though the Ark of the Covenant itself. He's called to be a prophet at that time in the land of the Chaldeans, in by the river Kibar. And now we have this prophecy following the destruction of Jerusalem about a year later following the destruction of Jerusalem, And after that destruction, you have some prophecy. And then chapter 37. And the hand of the Lord was upon me. This is by the river Kibar in Babylon. And carried me out in the spirit of the Lord. And set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. And caused me to pass by them round about. So he's given to walk in the midst of them, probably having to kick bones left and right. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know I, that I am the Lord. That is a Jehovah God who is faithful to his covenantal promises. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise. Behold a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. 
And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for, all, for our parts. Therefore prophesy, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. And I shall, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live. And I shall place you in your own land, then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord. And now follow a number of verses where you have two sticks, one representing Judah, and the other representing Ephraim, northern Israel, and the prophecy is they're going to become one nation again someday. Then we go on to verse 20. And the sticks whereupon, verse 20, whereupon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the, breath, the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation and the land upon the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I shall be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given them, given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. They shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. Our text, as stated in the bulletin, runs from verses 1 through 14, but especially 1 through 11. As I have said, Jerusalem has been destroyed, and the exiles have come to the land of Babylon in the tens and even hundreds of thousands. And at this stage, the Lord calls, calls the prophet Ezekiel to give encouragement to a people who were at the point of despair, many of whom witnessed the horror of the destruction of Jerusalem 
which wasn't simply the destruction of the walls, but had to do with the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, and then the slaughter that took place in Jerusalem so that the streets ran with blood, young men, maidens, and children, and infants as well, dashed against the stones in the fury of Babylon, who had to besiege the city for a time, and then finally break down its gates. And the people who came knew this was the judgment of God upon them, not simply the wrath of man, but the judgment of God. And this was a judgment of which they were worthy because of the abominations going on in the kingdom and with the leaders of the, of the nation as well. And they were at the point of despair. We are cut off. And God's dealings with us and mercy are done. Is this the meaning of the exile? We don't even have a temple or an Ark of the Covenant. The glory is departed. God is gone. What is left of us? The word of God now comes, words of encouragement. And if you read several chapters prior to the vision of the dry bones, references made to the covenant, and in our chapter as well, again, reference to the the, the, the truth of the covenant, God remembering his covenant promises and giving assurances that he will keep those covenant promises, which, of course, in the end have to do with salvation. But what he is saying, especially, that there's come, come a day when he will not only preserve the remnant of the elect, but he will even work to revive knowledge of salvation in many who have gone astray. And in addition to that, he's going to gather a people out of the nations from which they have been gathered, meaning not simply the Jews out of those nations, but with the Jews, Gentiles, who will also come, having heard the gospel and becoming the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith as well. That kind of a prophecy is in this chapter of ours. It magnifies God's faithfulness in spite of his people's unfaithfulness and the sins of which they have been guilty in kind of a divided allegiance. We will worship God and then also pursue the immoralities of the idols as well. And yet the people of God, the people of God are we. And what is magnified in this chapter as well is the importance of the preaching of the gospel. Prophesy, Ezekiel, prophesy. He says it more than once. But along with the importance, the vital importance of the preaching of the gospel for the salvation and preservation of his people is the importance, beloved, of attending to that word and seeking that word. And then not only hearing it, but listening to it. And not only the element of trust and faith, but repentance. That has to be emphasized in this passage, and we intend to emphasize this with respect to this passage, because that's what Ezekiel had to preach because that's what 
Israel did not listen to. And the prophecy is there comes a day when they will. They will hear the call to repentance and know what it really means and what is required of one who is sincerely repentant. And if one doesn't see that in the passage, then he's not looking at it with the spectacles of the Holy Spirit, let me tell you. Because this is a passage that must, must be read in its context of the people who said, oh, the word of God, the word of God, oh, what a wonderful word of God. And then as we're going to read a passage, and then they proceeded not to do it. Unrepentance. And for that they were judged. Chastised. But here, the word of God is, I will renew in the days this sincere repentance and the coming unto me. Striking, you know, on the day of Pentecost, first day of the New Testament age, the Jews came having crucified the Messiah. They were pricked in their hearts and said, what must we do? Sirs, how did Peter respond? Repent! And they listened. And there was the beginning of the gathering of the New Testament church and the revitalization of the dry bones. Where? No. The valley of the dry bones. Ezekiel's vision in the valley of the dry bones. What, e what Ezekiel saw, and then of course what that represented what he saw. What Ezekiel was called to do, preach what he was called to preach, with what result, what wonderful truth. That's also in the passage. Like the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, Ezekiel was brought to consider the Word of God via visions, visions that have to do with history, the history of redemption, if you will. And in John, of course, there was a history of the judgments that would fall upon the church in the whole of the New Testament age and society itself. Well, this is a similar kind of vision. What's interesting is, if you go to the book of Revelation, you will find in John's revelation many of the same symbolisms that you find in Ezekiel's prophecy and the book of Ezekiel. Well, here's a vision that Ezekiel has, and this is the first vision in which he, which he has had for some time. The last vision that Ezekiel has had goes back to chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, one extended vision with God's commentary on that vision. Now, that was about two years prior to, to this vision. The intervening chapters are revelations. Thus saith the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, again and again, but not visions. Now we have a vision, and it's a vision that really in some way relates to the vision you have in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, because 8, 9, 10, and 11 are the, is an extended vision of God's judgment upon Jerusalem and the reasons why there is going to be such a severe judgment, and it has to do with the people, but also with their leaders. We read in chapter 
8, that it came to pass in the sixth year of the sixth month. That is the sixth year since Ezekiel has been called to be a prophet. But it's in the 11th year of the exile, and it's just a short while before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me visions of, of God in Jerusalem. So he's in, he's in Babylon, but he has a screen, as it were, before him, as though he is in Jerusalem. And he sees the screen of Jerusalem before him, and the glory of, of God is there. And you read then of the sins of the leaders, especially, that they were engaged in. And he runs there into the glory of God with the cherubs again who stood over the threshold of the house of the Lord. And then you read that those cherubim with the glory of the Lord are going to lift up and leave the house of the Lord. But before he sees that part of the vision, you read this, chapter 11. The Spirit lifted me and brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house. And I looked eastward. That's the, where the door of the temple, or the gate of the temple was, towards the east, the rising of the sun. And he sees this man, Jezaniah, who is a prince. And he says concerning this man and others, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city, who say, it's not near. What's not near? Judgment is not near. Jeremiah has been preaching judgment because we are not supposedly worshiping God with a singleness of heart. We come to the temple. We bring sacrifices. I know on the side we go to the idols as well because idolatry allows them immorality without reproof. As long as you bring the priests of the idols, sacrifice, you may live as you please. Just bring the sacrifices. That's not God, beloved. That's not the holy God. Just as long as you bring your sacrifice, you can live as you please. It's not going to come. No judgment is going to fall. Why not? Well, we're the sons of Abraham. We have spiritual pedigree. That saves us, right? As long as you have spiritual pedigree, ancestors, we may live as we please. That sound like Christianity to you? It's not the Christianity of the Bible, I'll tell you that. He is a holy God. And you may confess him all you want in orthodoxy, but if one does not depart from iniquity, one either is not his, or if he is his, he's going to fall under the consequences of sin. There's going to be judgments. We live in a church age, beloved, when the apostate world and apostatizing churches don't want to hear about the judgments of God. Why not? Because the judgments of God speak of the holiness of God and underscore how serious he takes sin, that is, sins persisted in without repentance and attorney. Judgments are going to fall and a cutting off. They don't want to hear that. Neither did these men, and they did not depart. We read, then, following that, there comes a day when my people will walk in my statutes, but as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel over them and it went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Ichabod, you see. 
recognize the word Ichabod, the glory has departed. Going back to the sons of Eli when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with the Philistines and lost it and died themselves. And one of Eli's sons, the wife of one of Eli's sons, childbirth, died in childbirth. And as she was dying, he said concerning the little boy, name him Ichabod, the glory has departed. When the glory departs here, beloved, Jerusalem is wide open to the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. His presence is gone, his protection is gone, and they are going to be invaded not only, but they are going to be demolished, destroyed, become a heap of rubble and ruin. And it falls in just a few months after this vision back in chapter 11 of Ezekiel. And then from that destruction of Jerusalem comes this flood of exiles in the tens and even hundreds of thousands. And they are in despair. The glory is gone. Are we cut off forever? And it's in that context, beloved, that you have chapter 37. I just will read a section here yet from chapter 34. In, chap in verse 31 of 34, you read, 21, I'm sorry, verse 21 of 34. It came to pass in the 12th year of our captivity. These are the early exiles. It came to pass in the 12th year of our captivity in the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me saying, the city is smitten, literally destroyed, demolished. And if you read what follows, Ezekiel becomes dumb for a while, goes into shock, and sits silent for a number of hours and almost a day until the spirit comes and said, rise up, Ezekiel, you now have to continue to prophesy, and he goes on to Prophesy. And you have the word of the Lord coming in, in, verse, in chapter 34 and so on. And it reaches finally to 37. And the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. So he stands on the ground surrounded by piles of bones like snowbanks. Probably couldn't even see over some of this of the piles of bones. And these aren't whole skeletons. These are bones that are just scattered hither, thither, and everywhere. And he caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? They were very dry. Who do these bones represent? Well, they represent, beloved, living Israel, the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were alive, the exiles, not the dead corpses, which also were strewn hither, thither, and everywhere, but Israel that was in exile. These are represented by, they are represented by these dry bones. They are, most of them, dead while they live. You see, that's the point. They are carnal, they are apostate, and they are as dry bones. 
I say that because in verse 11 of the chapter you read, these are the whole house of Israel. That doesn't refer to the dead. This refers to the living. They are as dry bones. But not only, beloved, do they refer to the carnal Israel as dry bones, but it refers even to the whole of humanity, fallen humanity, humanity under sin and the power of bondage, spiritual bondage, and the power of death, if you will, while they live. You know your New Testament scriptures, then you know that there's a passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that speaks of being dead in trespasses and sins. Striking how that's worded. It speaks to the church of Christ and it says you, and then in italics hath he quickened because in the Greek that phrase doesn't occur right there. It occurs way down in, uh, in, in verse 5. But you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in the time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He is speaking, you understand, of natural man. Man, apart from the Holy Spirit, is dead in trespasses and sins. Every last soul born into this world, apart from the working of the Spirit, is dead in trespasses and sins. And that doesn't mean simply under the sentence of death, every man, woman, and child is under the sentence of death. Neither does it simply mean that all are great sinners and so they can't make themselves worthy of salvation. Nothing a natural man, unbelieving man can do makes himself worthy of salvation, so he remains worthy of death, and that's the power of spiritual death. But it means, beloved, so dead as the dry bones that one cannot even desire salvation. One has no interest in salvation. In fact, from many points of view, one is opposed to salvation. Understand salvation properly defined. The Armenians, of course, say, well, they're under the sentence of death. No man can make himself worthy of being released from the sentence of death and worthy of salvation. But if you bring the right gospel with the right appeal and talk about the love of God to all men, then you can persuade them to desire salvation. No, beloved. There is no man who is interested in salvation properly defined. He cannot and he will not. There is no freedom of the will from the power of spiritual death. One is in bondage. Beloved, how do you define salvation? Salvation is not simply this. I don't want to go to hell. I desire to go to heaven. As if that's salvation. So I'll join a church and have church membership and partake of sacraments now and again so that when I die, a clergyman will say some good things over me and I have a good opportunity, chance, if you will, of being in heaven. That's not salvation. Salvation, properly defined, is deliverance from sin. We sang of that. Deliverance. But sin, beloved, not simply from its guilt, not simply from its condemnation, but from its power and its hold on a man. Salvation in the end as it comes to manifestation is this, a living unto God, a seeking God, 
a desire to serve God, to submit to his word, and to forsake one's sin. That's salvation and the indication that a man is saved, and that no natural man is interested in. I have to cast myself on the mercy of God? And you mean I have to forsake my sin and leave my darling pleasures behind? Not interesting. Not, not that salvation. I have to be under the word of the law requiring me of this starting on the Lord's day? Not interested in that. I want to go to heaven. But I'm not going to forsake my sin, walk in the ways of obedience, and submit myself to the authority of God's word. That's natural man. You may have those, of course, who grow up quickly. But what does the parable say? They bear no fruit when all is said and done for all of their appearance. Dry bones beloved, and though they were very dry, not even having the appetite for anything that had to do with life and with any kind of vigor. Dead in every sense of the word. That's natural man. In bondage to sin. With no interest in living the life that is unto God and following Christ Jesus in sincerity and truth. So, a representation of carnal Israel and a representation also of natural man, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. But this is also, from a certain point of view, representation of believers at that time, and I can say even today, believers at that time who had spiritual life in them. Don't forget that there were those at that time. There were still the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. God in his electing mercy preserved a remnant in northern Israel. Where do you think Ezekiel came from? Daniel and his three friends and so on. A remnant spiritually alive. And yet, from a certain point of view, you can speak of them as dry bones. How can you speak of those who have spiritual life as being dry bones? This way, we as believers, beloved, cannot bring forth spiritual seed. That is, seed which has spiritual life. You may be married to a believer. Two believers together cannot bring forth a child who has spiritual life. We bring forth seed which at the beginning of their existence and every last one of us included was dead in trespasses and sins in the womb as your physical life began. Until when? When the Lord of electing grace decided to operate in that heart in a spiritual way and blew as the Holy Spirit upon the development of a child, be it an infant in the womb. And then that which was spiritually dead as spiritual life and what we call the gift, the bond of faith itself. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit according to election by his irresistible grace. And until that occurs, even in our seed, and our children, they have no spiritual life. They are conceived dead in trespasses and sins. And that's what the spiritual were concerned about under the judgment of God in exile. These are the whole house of Israel, the 
carnal and the spiritual. And it's the spiritual who say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost. Our hope, what lost? For bringing forth spiritual seed. If the judgment of God means he's going to cease working by covenant promise in our seed, we will not bring forth spiritual seed. We are dry bones. We can't bring forth spiritual seed. The Holy Spirit himself has to do that according to his will and determination in his mercy and his covenantal electing grace. Does our being cast out of Jerusalem as exiles in the promised land and under the judgment of God because he's so angry mean we're cut off? He's not going to work in the womb of believing women anymore, of our wives, and turn the dead into the living the seed of the covenant, then we won't even be able to bring forth the Messiah. We're cut off. We're done. We are as dry bones, beloved. That's that's true of us, too, from a natural point of view when it comes to bringing spiritual seed. For spiritual seed, beloved, in the future of the church, we depend upon what? The power of a God of covenant who gives life to our children, spiritual life, and we may baptize them in the name of the triune God as having spiritual life according to work he determined to work even prior to their birth, raising them from the dead. So these citizens of Jerusalem in exile at the point of despair. In fact, you know, even Ezekiel it was at the point of despair when he heard about the judgments of God. You read that in chapter chapter 9, that he was thinking that, Lord, came to pass that, I, that there, there, there's a, a vision of, of the angels slaying many of the, of the people in a vision. And he falls on his face and he cries and says, O Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? He's at the point of despair. We're all going to be wiped out, nothing left. Where's the promise of the seed of the woman? See? At the point of despair himself. And then comes this vision. The vision of the dry bones and what God says he will do. The hope is not himself, but the hope is in this God who remembers his covenant, as he says in verse 31 of 36, then shall you remember your own evil ways and so on. Not for your sakes do I do this, saith the Lord God, be it known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, but I will do it for my name. I am Jehovah God, and I love a people from all eternity, and I will be true to my word. That's the hope. And it's in the knowledge of that and on the basis of that that you have this vision, you see, of the, of the prophet to encourage himself and that he in turn may encourage the remnant and be assured that God will preserve a remnant and even revive life in many of those who have gone astray and gather out of the nations of the world as well. So this vision 
of the power of God and his faithfulness. Now, God assures Ezekiel of this and those who are at the point of despair by carrying him into this valley that's full of bones and causing him to look upon these bones. And he asks the question, can these, son of man, can these bones live? And the prophet says almost, why do you even ask, Lord? Thou knowest. Of course these bones can't live. What those bones represent, remember, is Israel. And the question of the Lord is saying to Israel, saying to, 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 to Ezekiel, is it possible that these people, this Israel, could return to the land of promise and place themselves under my word and fight the battle of faith and be useful in the establishment of the promised kingdom? These bones, referring to Israel itself. Ezekiel knows that, you see. <coughs> Lord, thou knowest. No more than these dry bones could rise up and walk back to Israel and then live according to thy word and worship thee and thee alone and, and then be useful in the battle of faith and by faith obtain the victory. It's a dream. It's a dream of futility as surely as these bones are very, very dry. What hope is there? We are without hope. Son of man, prophesy. Prophesy to these dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. And thus saith the Lord, I will cause breath to enter, to, to enter in unto you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinew upon you and bring flesh upon you. I will do it in my time, by my power, according to my faithfulness. But, aloud, note, verse 4 goes before verse 5. The promise is God is going to do this great work for his name's sake, faithful to his word and his electing mercy. But not apart from verse 4. It's not simply this. Can these bones live? Lord, thou knowest. Of course they can't. They are without power unless thou doest something miraculous. And then right from verse 3 to 4. Well, thus saith the Lord unto these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter to you in you and you shall live. And you simply omit verse 4. Verse 4 may not be omitted, beloved. Notice, thou knowest. Again. God said unto him and to me, prophesy upon these bones. Notice the word again. Again, because Ezekiel says, I've been prophesying. Jeremiah prophesied. What difference did it make, Lord God? They remained headstrong in their sins and their willful way, and the judgment fell anyway. Now they're dry bones. What good can it do? It's an exercise in futility. Why waste my breath? We've been doing that for decades. He's frustrated. The Lord says, Ezekiel, again, I've been telling you to prophesy. You haven't seen the changes you would like to see. Preach again. Prophesy. And I will, in connection with your prophesying, your preaching, 
work upon me bone. You see, there's a connection. You don't read verse 5 and what follows apart from the command to prophesy the importance of the preaching of the word beloved. New Testament, 1 Corinthians. It hath saved God by what? By the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It is the preaching we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that is the power of God unto salvation. It hath pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And then for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved. It is the power of God. Foolishness as far as the world is concerned. And sometimes even to preachers of the gospel, because I've preached and I preached and I preached and I don't see any great change, Lord. Maybe as a missionary and there's no conversion. Why keep wasting my breath? Because it's pleased God to say by what the world calls foolishness. Foolishness, of course, because you're preaching this man who died on the cross. And that's supposed to be victory over death. That's not victory over death. That's death. That's enemies who overpowered a man and put him on a cross and nailed him to a cross. And somehow by that cross, there's going to be salvation, deliverance from the power of evil and victory. That's not victory. That's defeat. What foolishness. And the gospel preacher has to say, if you think that was a mere man crucified on the cross, you are sorely and sadly mistaken. That was no mere man. That was the Son of God who gave himself to death on the cross with the view to payment for sins, the atoning for your sins, brother, if you're one of his, and to arise from the dead victorious. We preach to you one who was crucified and risen from the dead. But the world calls it foolishness. A man rose from the dead, how can that possibly be? Well, beloved, it occurred. You better put your faith and trust in that or perish. It has saved God by the foolishness of preaching to save them. It's the power of God unto salvation. So, prophet of mine, preach. Declare the words once again, the truth concerning Jehovah God and what they are called to do, because that's included in the preaching that he's called to do. It doesn't give us all the detail here. It's in the, it's in the context, you see. He preaches the Lord God. He preaches you must worship him and him alone and not this double-mindedness. You must, must put your trust in his word and his word alone. And you must turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways and live in the ways of conversion having to do with repentance. You see, that was what, to this point, many of them were not interested in doing. As we read in verse 31 of chapter 33, 33, 31, they come unto thee, God says to Ezekiel, as the people cometh. They sit before thee as my people, they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love. Oh, wonderful sermon. Uh-huh. But their heart goeth after their covetousness, after their lusts. They will not leave their lusts and their passions. They pretty much leave 
as they came. Because what they're called to do, that is this matter of repentance unto godliness, they're not interested in. Now, preach, and preach the call to repentance. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. The call to repentance. Repentance, beloved, is not merely saying, I am a great sinner. I am a wretch, though that's involved, certainly. Repentance has to do with confession of sin. But it's not simply, well, I can out confess what great, great sinner I am more than you can confess what a great sinner you are. I'm a greater sinner than you are. Not all of you, maybe. Because then that man can find someone who's probably even a worse sinner than I am. Not that bad, at least. That's not repentance, comparing yourself to others, or even putting oneself down as a great sinner, and then leaving as one came. Repentance has to do with what we read here in 36. Then shall you remember your evil ways and your doings that are not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. And then what? What you read in chapter 37. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols and detestable things and I will save them and they shall walk in my ways. That's, you see... Repentance, And that's what Ezekiel had to preach as well. The call to sincerity, to loathe yourselves. That's an interesting phrase, to loathe yourselves. Loathing is a strong word. But the point is to contrast what they had been doing. They were eating rotten meat. They were like vultures and crows that landed along the side of a highway and picked rotten meat and called it appetizing. You see, that's what sin is like rotten meat on the highway. And that's what they fed on. Delicious, really? And then comes the word of the God and changes the heart. And I had an interest in that. That fed me. I loathe my appetite. I now have a desire for what is true. The bread of life. The water of life. That which so I loathe, you see, what was prior delight to me becomes rottenness, has a stink. And what I once did want, I desire. This feeds my soul. This has, a, this has a, an attraction. This feeds my appetite. I hunger and thirst after righteousness, you see, a whole new appetite. And that's repentance, beloved. That's the work of the Spirit under the preaching of the gospel. We must not divide the two. We must not imagine, you know, and simply say, it's grace, grace, grace. We're saved by grace. And that simply mutes and muscles, muscles and dismisses the call to repentance because it's all of grace. No. Grace is such that it delivers from the power of sin so that one does loathe sin, you see, and puts it away. Even the appetite that remains, God be merciful to me. And yet there is that new appetite as well for what is good and true and according to God's word. That's the power in the end of the spirit in connection with the preaching of the gospel. And what the passage also underscores, beloved, is that the preaching of the gospel, apart from the work of the spirit, doesn't accomplish anything. That's striking, you know, because you read here that he prophesies and something begins to happen, doesn't it? There's a stirring. 
There's a noise. The bones become, begin to click together. And here's the bones scraping against the bones as the spiritual goes. The ankle bones found somehow the shin bone, and the shin bone found the thigh bone, and the thigh bone found the pelvic bone, and the back bone, all the way up to the neck and to the skull. And yet, it's the sound of the bones as they click against each other and rattle, and there's a shaking. And finally, there are whole skeletons lying there intact, and then the sinews come upon them, and the flesh, and something is happening. There seems to be a renewal. And yet, notice, I beheld, in verse 8, and there was no breath in them. So they lay there, whole bodies, if you will, yet corpses. And you wonder what the significance of that is exactly. But it may be well the Lord's way of telling Ezekiel and the people that just the preaching of the gospel is not sufficient to hear the preaching of the gospel. There can be a certain positive response to the preaching of the gospel according to that parable of the sower of the seed. And there's a plant that grows up with enthusiasm for a time, but it has no deepness of root, and it bears no fruit, and it withers away. Something else must happen, you see, to these dry bones, to hear the word, to consider the word, and then must be the work of the Holy Spirit. So say, prophet of mine, to the wind, breathe on me, breath of God. Breathe on these bones, O breath of God. Give them life. And the Holy Spirit comes, and then these bones live. It's a salvation that occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit, but not apart from the preaching of the word. You see, God has joined these things together. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's always in the, in the sphere of the preaching, even with an infant that is, that is born again. It has to do, it, it's in, in, a, in an area where there's preaching of the, of the gospel, not where the gospel has not yet reached. He honors the word. And so the importance, beloved, of attending to the word, that we indeed may be blessed with the saving God and his works of salvation, we in our generations. And so, beloved, this great work of the coming together of the, of the bones and life given to, to man, even to those of the Gentile race, there's a glorious wonder that occurs here the dry bones live become living persons again with the breath of the Holy Spirit in them that's the meaning of course he bloweth where he listeth but they become notice an army and that we must not lose sight of an exceeding great army not just a great multitude but that word army is selected purposely because in the end, you see, this people is to become a force to be reckoned with, a force to be reckoned with in the establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah. When, Lord, when with this prophecy will this word come to true, come to pass in its fullness? And not beloved simply in the return of the exiles to the promised land. It is a fulfillment in the way that they return to the promised land. And there were those, of course, who were spiritually alive and they lived in the way of repentance as well. 
but this could not be said of the exiles returned to the promised land that they were a force to be reckoned with. They were not a force to be reckoned with. They remained under the heel of the Persians and then of the Greeks and of the Roman Empire until what happened? A decree went out from Caesar Augustus and a virgin and her husband-to-be went to Bethlehem and the seed of the woman was born. The second David from the household of David because she was of the house of David. He of the royal house, she of the spiritual house. And he adopts Jesus, the firstborn, to be his son in the line of royalty then by adoption. But the spiritual seed of the woman is born. And this is the second David. And he goes to the cross, doesn't he? And he pays the price. And he arises with healing in his wings. And he ascends up into heaven far greater than Elijah himself. And sits at the right hand of God. And sends out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And blesses those disciples that they become apostles and can preach the fullness of the gospel. And in connection with the preaching of that gospel, the Holy Spirit breathes upon many. And they are converted. And they become the children of God. But the New Testament church, beloved, becomes a force to be reckoned with. The church militant throughout the New Testament history is a force to be reckoned with. Not necessarily because they are so many in comparison with the world, but 10,000 times 10,000 are saved and gathered, and they are a church that is a light. And how do they do battle, beloved? Not with sword and with shield or with gun and with bomb. Peter, put away your sword, he says at the Garden of Gethsemane. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. I do not intend to have the victories by the sword and by military might. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Take the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Go as defenseless as lambs before wolves. And as you preach the gospel, you will have victories. You will contend with forces that the world cannot contend with. Darkness and death and the evil one. Tell me, beloved, tell me, has anyone of the world yet overcome death? Not that I've heard of. Has any of the world delivered from the power of the devil? Not that I've heard of. Has anyone been as a light in a dark, dark place and given light and illumination of truth in the world? Not that I've heard of. There is, however, a people to whom light and power has been commissioned and delivered. Those who wield the sword of the spirit and say, this is the word of Jehovah God. And the New Testament church has been used by Christ to deliver from the power of death, from the power of sin, and from the power of the evil one, and sets a people free. That's power, beloved. And that's power that reaches unto everlasting and eternal life. The world doesn't have it. They die. And from death to death. But those who hear the words of God, upon whom his spirit breathes, they are raised to newness of life. And they become part of the victories. More than conquerors, I believe scripture says, does it not? Live by faith. In the end, you are more than conquerors and the conquerors of the world because you have power then over death, sin and its consequences, and over the devil himself. So, beloved, this prophecy, if God be for us, 
who can be against us? And we need to hear this word today because you know as well as I do, the powers of evil and of darkness are multiplying and becoming ever more bold and ready to be truly abusive. To take the children of God and to persecute them. And there is no recourse to any kind of justice because these people confess this Lord Jesus to be their Lord and their King over even against the civil government. We will not have these people reminding us of our sins, our immoralities, of our abominations. Silence them. And they are many. And we are few. What hope is there? Our hope, beloved, is the one who is for us. Jehovah God and our Lord Jesus Christ who rules on high, who hath arisen from the dead and has all power at his disposal. That's our hope. That's our confidence. And as I say again, go forth in his service, strong in his might, to conquer all evil and stand for the right. In the end, beloved, we will know the victory. The victory, thanks be to God. With him, we are never without hope. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks for the power of the Holy Spirit and thy grace. That by the gracious operations of the Holy Spirit we may be a new, a new people. May we live that way in the repentance unto godliness and magnify thyself what thou canst do and what thou hast done and will continue to do in thy own. In Jesus' name, amen.